Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hi, Gary. Oh, that was the first time, I think, for a long time that you said hi first. <laughs> is that how it works? Well, I didn't know there was an order to these no, things. No, there is an order to these things, but I think it's being the impatient person that I am, I tend to... Say hi first, but hello. We're not like Anton Deck, are we? You don't have to stand the same way round every time. No, no. Or speak or, the same. Although way. many ways we are like Anton Deck. <laughs> uh, well, uh, uh, no, anyway, so we're we are in, we're in Sofia today, and uh, you've seen everything yesterday. You managed to see everything in a marathon of sightseeing. Anyone who follows my Instagram knows that I'm a big sightseeing person, uh, but I'm always jumping out and seeing whatever I can. And it's quite a beautiful city, incredible cathedral and a brilliant art gallery. Discovered some fantastic Belgian... I'm uh, sorry, what am I talking about? I don't even know where I am. What, what day is it? Bulgaria. Bul- Remember, Bulgarian Uncle artists. Bulgaria from the Wombles. Yes, yes. Um, but we've been as far out as Istanbul, haven't we, in the last couple of yeah, weeks? Yeah, we we've literally, in, in two weeks, we've driven from the very tip of, like, you know, up in Scandinavia, right down to Asia. And it's been incredible to see that journey happening before our eyes um, and, and, and the different cultures and, and, and to be... Well, you know, to see what those audiences are like around Europe. And um, we we really need to uh, talk about who's on today. We've got Bernard Butler, who um, I'm a great admirer of as a guitar player. And uh, I'm sure you are. I am, yeah. Um, and of course, we got first introduced to him uh, through his band Suede in the early 90s. Yeah. And then, but he's gone on to, he's a man of many, many hats. I mean, incredible, incredible worker. And just, you know, even, I mean, he's, when he's not, Writing, playing, singing, producing, recording. He's lecturing. 
Wow. And and he's got this fantastic new album out with Jessie Buckley, the the actress Jessie Buckley, um, which is just um, is about to complete to drop any minute now. And the singles have been out and they are incredible. They are absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of clips of video clips available. You can see of them, which are there's a couple of songs which are just brilliant. And also that great friend of the rock on tours, the wonderful Catherine Ann Davis. Is there's an album which finally uh, came out. Yes, the anchoress. Yeah. Um, have you met? Have you met Bernard? I have. I did a day's recording with McCann. Martin Butler. Uh, I knew you would have done. I knew you would have done. <laughs> well, day, well, it's no, inevitable. Day yes, of course it is. But I, I don't think anything happened with it. And, and I was never asked back. So I don't know if maybe they thought I was shit. I don't know. Well, I've met Bernard too. And he loves me. Yes. He loves me more than you. He texted me to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Was that just for the text I got saying everyone hates me? Yes, it was. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London, they're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's, uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey! <laughs> bird, you're an early bird. Uh, yeah, my wife goes out, my wife's a teacher, so she goes out to battle at 6.30. She goes out with helmet on on her bike and just like she's going to war <laughs> with, with <laughs> London's brats. But you're a so, teacher. As, you're a teacher as well, aren't you? Uh, well, I did. I did do some. Yeah, I, have, I mean, I do on and off. I've do, I did it for about five years, part time lecturing, and uh, I'm still doing bits and pieces. But I can't be asked at the moment, if I'm honest. So I did <laughs> it for. A while. I did BIM for a while. Oh really? Yeah. Which I, one? In Brighton. But it was when I first oh, yeah. when I first moved to Brighton, and it was just a way of kind of embedding myself in the community. And it's, yeah. mate, it was jam. I was doing live performance. Oh, I didn't like, know you did that, because that's, yeah, yeah. that's basically what I was doing. Well, kind of roundabout, yeah, the songwriting stuff. But, um, could, could you expand the acronym, Guy, please? Uh, BIM. It's, it, it, well, it was actually started in Brighton. It was the Brighton Institute of Modern Music. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, so it's it's one of those. It's British, basically it's trains people to go and teach at BIM. Yeah. I thought we should we should start off talking about your album with Jesse Buckley. Yes. Because I think it's an extraordinary piece of work. We both agreed. Do. We both do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just want to say a bit about her f- before before we delve into it. Um, I saw her. I mean, I, I've watched her work um, over the you know the years um, since she entered that competition with Andrew Lloyd Webber um, <laughs> about becoming Maria, and I think which I think she lost. Um, yeah, I don't but, know um, that. We'll get to that. <laughs> I, I I saw her recently in in Cabaret playing Sally Bowles. And it blew my mind. I mean, when she sings Cabaret, you know, we all know the Liza Minnelli version. And it's, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't go close to that. What she does is she digs into the subtext irony of that song and the anger that is inside her, you know, because it's not a cabaret. And, you know, the, the Nazis are on their doorsteps. And, uh, and she virtually screams this song. I mean, she sings it in this guttural voice that is not musical theatre at all and yet it, everyone in the place was just dumbstruck with 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 what the way her delivery was yeah i mean what blew me away first of all going to cabaret was uh i i went on jesse said oh come and see i'm in this play 
because that's what she's like. He said, oh, come and see it. And um, come. And I said, OK, you know, and I didn't know what we were going to really. I knew we were going to cabaret. But um, so uh, me and Mrs. Butler got ready for Saturday night. We're going to see Jessie in this thing. You know, it's she, she's she's always great. And uh, we rocked up and it was the gala performance. And we were like wearing our anoraks, basically. You know, it's a rainy night and we like- Oh, the, so like, 90s. Uh, right? <laughs> I mean, not really, not really. We were just like thought, we'll go for, should we go for a pint first or should we just go straight? And we had no idea what we were going to. And basically everyone's in tuxedos, um, except for us. And we thought, oh no. And then we got shown to our seats and you know how it was in the, uh, in the round. Um, Gary yeah. and you know people all around it and we got shown to our seats and it was that we were in the front row like the front right right and we just said I just said I don't think so and she said and the, the person said I think so you're sitting there and um, anyway you know so anyway the, the, my story is that um, j- just popping in just behind me or in fact two rows behind me was that drummer out of Pink Floyd that bloke um, <laughs> <Where was> he? <laughs> um, so, I see I look over my shoulder because I'm looking around the crowd, look at the knobs the knobs who are all behind me in tuxedos thinking who's the twat in the front row with his jeans on I just had breakfast with Nick downstairs and, and he said oh I, I love Jesse in, in, in Calgary oh, he said that yeah. to me because I said I was about to talk to you although the <laughs> evening was, really was- ruined yes you just <laughs> took my line away oh sorry oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I just, okay i just i just said i just said to my wife I, just said, I said to my wife um all is well the drummer's in the back row and he's the drummer from pink floyd we're gonna be fine tonight i'm up front jesse's on the front this is a band basically <laughs> the terrible thing about turning up to those events when you do get caught on the hop is that when you turn up and you just everyone thinks you're making some sort of statement yeah we weren't yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but it was it was amazing. You're right. And Jessie, well, she's you know she's a phenomenal human being, and uh, she's a good friend. And um, it didn't shock me. Um, but um, she, yeah, that moment you when she gets to the end of cabaret and and she lets loose with it is uh, it's quite extraordinary. I can, I mean, I've not, I, I don't, we don't really talk about what we do. Um, I think I just said to her, that was brilliant, well done, you know. But I came away and I just said to a few people that I think it was it's one of the best performances of anything I've ever seen, like performance of uh, music, theatre, anything that night. I just came away thinking that is just, this is just amazing what I'm watching. And that person up there, oh, I've made this record. This is like last December when no one knew we'd made this record. And I was just thinking, it's pretty cool. <laughs> we made this record with that woman up there because she's pretty good. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really great night. And she, but she, she's, she's, a, she's pure character. And uh, it doesn't surprise me the way she uh, throws herself into everything. The one thing that resonates with Jessie all the time when I'm around her a lot at the moment, I used to always say to students, to young people, um, you know, you're trying the, the advice or whatever. I just say the best people are unbelievably focused and prepped. They aren't there on it. You can find them off their nut at four in the morning or, or doing God knows what. But when they get to the stage, the best people are so on it they know every movement from what's going to happen when they get to the dressing room to that movement going to the stage to write what happens the moment they walk onto the stage and where they face every moment, you know, every moment they've thought it through and, and, and they're so on it. And if you can think that through, visualize all those elements, you know, that's what, that's how far you have to take it beyond mm-hmm. um, technique and talent and, and luck and all the rest of it. And Jessie's one of those people, you know, when I'm around her at the moment, I'm, it sort of takes my breath away how, how far she wants to go. And it makes me, you know, um, you know, you're on your toes the whole time, you know, because everyone has to raise their game. 
What brought you together? What brought us together? Um, after she did the film Wild Rose, uh, where she plays a, a country singer, and uh, she so she had a kind of a, a loose record deal after that. Um, and a guy called Paul Smanicki, a great guy who's now looking after us, um, who um, was charged with looking off, trying to find Jesse some music to make. And I think Paul just really wanted to keep Jesse making music, not just go just back to acting. And um, and Paul, I think, was a fan of mine and, and put us together. And I think the, the thing that swung it was that Jesse, I made a record with Sam Lee, a folk artist, oh, Sam oh, Lee. Oh, oh, it was amazing. Oh, I okay. love amazing. that record. Yeah. I didn't amazing. know that was even <laughs> you, because I fell in love with that record a while ago. Oh. And, and I didn't really research who produced it. And I, and I got in touch with Sam on social media. He kindly sent me his book uh, recently. There was the one on the yeah. Nightingale. Nightingale's, yeah. But um, yeah. and and I, extraordinary multi instrumentalist, but who, who who lives in the woods sometimes and listens to gets up and sings to the birds at four a.m. in the morning. Extraordinary yeah. man, old wow. Go and listen to it if you yeah, remember, yeah, if you absolutely. Know. I can literally make a list on just about two hands of all the people who've uh, heard that record, but they're all very uh as you are very uh, eminent and talented people like it's literally oh wow you know that and so jesse was one of them and i didn't expect that at all to be honest why would i, I didn't know her and um and so when when we um we did this kind of facetime chat and um she was uh wandering around like outside in the in it was rain she's up a mountain literally walking through the, the mountain in the rain and so hi how are you and i'm like all right uh, this isn't the easiest way of doing an intro conversation, but anyway. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, the first thing she said to me is um, uh, that she loved the Sam Lee record. And that kind of, when she said that, it sort of, uh, it flipped my brain into into gear. I, I sort oh, of understood it, straight away what, what, where, what, what land we were in, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's very British, isn't it? There's a, well, although there's an ele elements of Americana in, in this Jesse Buckley album. I mean, Sam is obviously very, very British folk music based. But there's a cinematic quality to the way you've built the production. People, you know, people always use that uh, those words, cinematic and uh, big and stuff. I I never really think about it that way. I'm really glad people think about it that way. Of course, it's lovely, but um, I never really think about it that way. I, I sort of uh, sometimes people think of size in music. You know, we talk about um, mm -hmm. these terms like the wall of sound and things that are, are, present size and reverb. I always think we forget to think about depth. And uh, that's where you go into the word soul, which is kind of like, a, oh my God, are we going to go to that word? You know, are we allowed to? And and um, it's this—it's the depth of emotions that I always dive into. And so I always feel like I'm diving in rather than just trying to make things bigger and bigger. I always just try and find more, you know, and, and I'm never satisfied, you know, and then sometimes it's just turning the thing up or, or um, d you know, doing things recording the same thing a hundred times, you know, until, until I find the right delivery. It's all about the delivery for me with all, yeah. with all these things. I, so, yeah. Talking of which, there's one thing, there's that fantastic TV performance. I think it's the Eagle and the Dove where you've got two sets of vocalists. You've got, and this is actually very pertinent to where we are, Gary, because it's, there's a group of, of voices on it, which sound very Bulgarian. Ah, now you're the first person to get that. Um, well, it wasn't because uh, we're, we're in Sofia, we're in Sofia, right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so basically, we got into um, uh, we got into listening to I don't know how she found this thing of um, Georgian, this uh, this bunch of Georgian blokes, um, so not Bulgaria, but um, that part of Europe, I guess, 
um, sitting around a Christmas table, a big dining table. I mean, it's on YouTube. I, I'll find it and send it to you. And uh, it's just about 20 blokes, gorgeous hunks with beards and the most, you know, sort of swarthy sort of blokes singing a, a traditional Christmas song. And I think it was in Georgia. And it's astonishing voices, like the, cro- the voices are crossing over and going into harmonies that are very close. Sometimes they go into unison and sometimes they're with a sort of within a tone or something. And they and then they drift off again. And uh, Jesse found this and we got both got obsessed by it. And at one point we were going to try and use it and we didn't. And then we just found that we were just listening to all this, going, looking for more stuff like this. And then we were going to, we were at one point thinking, who can we, in fact, I remember Googling Georgian singers in London and stuff, you know, and, and thinking, how can we do this? Uh, and in the end, she turned up one day and uh, she said, oh, I'm going to do this little intro thing. And she just did it. And she just built her voice up in about half an hour. Wow. And I was just like, wow, wow. this is, uh, <laughs> you're something else. And she went into character with it, you know, like wow. um, uh, the way she, um, the way she, uh, the kind of accent, the dialect. Because you do have, sort of yeah. have to build this around her, don't you? It's, it, it doesn't work if you sit there producing a record thinking, oh, this is a nice sound, or this is a nice re- sound, mm-hmm. and, 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 and making lots of music. And then suddenly she's drowning in it. Um, how do you, when do you decide, let's get the vocal down. That's the most important part of the record. And how can we build around it? So the way we did this is we we wrote this in the summer of 2020. And uh, when it was kind of loose lockdown, I can't even remember anymore, but um, it was, uh, we, we basically did it in my kitchen. Basically she got, she was doing Fargo and it got, uh, got delayed, got postponed, which was just like, yes, this is the only reason this record came back, uh, happened. And so she was stuck in London for a few months. And uh, so she started coming around to mine. We sat in the kitchen. We did this two days a week with um, just an acoustic guitar, no mics, no, no equipment at all really. And uh, we, we'd sit and, and, and write each song. And, um, and at the end of the day, once we had the song, we just recorded it on our phone and that was it. And we left it and we did that for, for like 13 weeks or something. Um, and, to, and we had all these songs and then she went off to do Fargo and that was it for another few months. And then um, we kept, kept on talking and we started talking about, well, what are we going to do with this? You know, and, and then when Je- by the time Jesse came back, we had another lockdown and it started to become like that. Um, but we were just still sitting on these songs with just really, really um, crappy recordings, you know, on uh, on the phone and, and the mm-hmm. scratch. Literally write the song, sing it once, go home. It was like that. So what I did is I thought, OK, so the only I was really cautious of us being trapped in the essence of what we did and not being able to reproduce it. So, say, going to Book Abbey Road with a, with a band and then realizing that this does have this has no connection with the spirit of what we did when we wrote the song. So what I did is I put on put these uh, phone recordings onto um, uh, into my computer onto Pro Tools and um, I tracked against the demo. And so and also this is the only version of Jesse's voice I had. So I just started experimenting, putting music against it, playing a lot, playing along to it basically. And I played along to it until I could get rid of the demo. So if you see what right. I mean, it would build up, oh, it would build up until it was like it was something there and everything would snowball around it until you couldn't see what was there originally. But everything was built on the spirit and the essence of it. And the reason for that was that all the dynamics and the tempos were were completely loose. There was no click tracks and no metronomes. And um, it had all these dynamics of us just sitting fiddling in my kitchen, basically. And I, I wanted to keep all of those in place. So that's how we did it, and that's it. and then and then and then Jesse, I, I sent 
I would set Jessie up in um in her house um with um a microphone and um an interface, really, really uh, simple stuff, and um would send her tracks and hope for the best. And in the uh, writing process, would 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 you always come up with with a guitar part first? I mean, because it's quite acoustic based. There's it's like sound of the dobro on there, and it's as a uh, did did you always have the, the the sort of musical essence first, and then she would sing over the top? Um, no, not at all. I mean, everything was done on the spot, pretty much. And it was, uh, I mean, I didn't write any guitar parts for it initially. It was just whatever happened was the thing that happened that moment. So no, I didn't write anything in advance. I wanted everything to be super pure of the moment, um, and that's has a lot to do with how Sam's record evolved. Um, and a lot to do with where, where I've evolved to, I don't know, uh, somehow over the years that I, I really like tr- uh, trying as much as possible to, to whittle things down to try and find the pure, purest essence of something. You know, it's what I really try and look for. And with Jesse, it was the perfect opportunity to do this because it's somebody who's never made a record before, um, n- not really had much experience with studios, microphones, etc., she didn't really know who I was, which was brilliant, apart from the Sam record, which is, you know, my one of my probably my favorite record I've ever made. And and um, you know, and we had no expectations. She Jesse didn't want to become a pop star or um become the new Adele or something like that. She had no aspirations. All she wanted to do was create. This is her whole thing with her, is she just loves creating and in whatever way that is. Um, and so there was we had no musical references, uh, really. And uh, we, every all the guitar was just played on the spot, and, and whatever I came up on the day when we wrote the song became the guitar part that was on the record. Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's all on sorry, the... guy. I, I, I know. You're, I, I'm, I'm sort of hogging. Uh, no, hog away. Hog away. It's fine. Um, it's fine. I, I, I sort of scribbled down when I listened to the album, which kindly sent us as well. I mean, obviously, I can hear elements of you know Nick Drake and Joe Boyd and Sandy Denny and Sarah McLaughlin and the early Sarah McLaughlin records. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a folk thing, but there's also an Americana thing. There's a double bass on it. And it, that was, that, I just thought immediately, has he used Danny Thompson? Is this his Burt Yanch connection, the pentangle? Um, I didn't use Danny Thompson, no. Uh, I've met Danny Thompson in the last 10 years and I think uh, might have been too much to do. I used a guy called uh, Misha Malavabado who plays on Sam's record. And he's a young guy, young, amazing, amazing musician. And uh, I just sort of fell in love with his playing when I worked with Sam. And when I was working with Sam, I was thinking, I had my eye on, I'm going to use you again. You know, <laughs> it's like that, really. Um, uh, the, the, the Bert thing is, is really important to me because um, I knew Bert for the last 10 years of his life and um, hung out with him an awful lot. Um, and, of course, know those records. Um, and, yeah, it's had a, had a big big uh, sort of musical, but also sort of personal influence over me and, and the way you approach music. <clears throat> and, uh, obviously the sound of those, uh, the Pentangle records with with Danny Thompson on and obviously John Martin, et cetera, everything else he played on um, is uh, is amazing, yeah. But- um, and it was a really, it was it would be really, it was really, it was a, I thought it was a really cool idea to bring that element into something um, with Jesse's voice. Yeah, I thought that'd be that'd be a great thing to do. The Bert Yanch thing is fascinating because also because um, I mean I, I hate to say it because it probably comes up a fair bit because it, it's that's a, a, a similarity. There's quite a lot of similarities between you and Johnny Marr, really, aren't there? In that in terms of a his guitar, just that and that fantastic journeyman thing of wanting to do so many different yeah. things. Because you both worked with Bert Yanch, didn't you? Cri- yeah, Crimson, Crimson Moon. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. At the same time, it was great. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really happy with being compared to Johnny Marr. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously, I grew up with Johnny's music mm. and uh, and and got to meet him uh, when I was quite young, and he was really kind to me. He was just really good to me. Yeah, you he's know? a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a and and as you grow, I was much younger then, and obviously as you grow older, you realise okay, and it goes back to teaching again. Just it's one of those things you make a mental note. People were good to you when you were young. You know, you had uh, older people um, being kind to you. It made a big difference to me, and um, it's it's a reminder to keep do to always do that to everyone else. You know, it, it makes such a difference. You know, it keeps you going. Um, so and also when I was growing up, probably my first experiences um, in the band and stuff, I was thinking, well, am I just ripping off Johnny here? You know, am I going to get caught out? You know, and, and I think first hearing my first records I made, I thought, actually, I don't really sound like Johnny. and I don't have to be disappointed or, you know, think, actually, this is quite a good thing. And, and obviously, in the end, it's quite a, it's a good thing to not. It's a good the, the way you want to take inspiration, isn't it? Is to be inspired and influenced to create something new. Yeah. Well, well, you weren't ashamed it... of being a rock and roll guitarist when you started, which I think with with Johnny they were so trying to find an alternative to that. Yeah, yeah but I, I mean, just want yeah. to say to that because I do think that's there's there's a sort of evolution that came out of punk, that that punk we all know was pretty much just thrashing the bar chords, and and. Um, that that after that there was a sort of a posher approach to it well we can't just keep doing that and you've got people like the pretenders and you've got andy summers with with, with the with the police and then and then i think there was a look back to the birds as well and that's this idea of saying well i don't and i know you've you've mentioned this before in, in previous interviews bernard but this idea of saying well i don't just want to strum the chords and and that's what johnny was it was mm -hmm. breaking it down into what's called arpeggios and and triads and and, and playing the notes within those parts that was parts. definitely your yeah parts parts yeah. yeah i mean i think i was pretty blessed with um that era i think what people um always talk about the 60s the golden era of the 60s and 70s for obvious reasons um i think it was a bit sort of um left behind how blessed we were with guitar players and musicians in the 80s and that was who I grew up with when when so I'm you know I was at school in the in the early you know mid 80s um so they were my guitar playing um uh, years you know learning my 10,000 hours were uh, between <laughs> 84 and 86 you know and um and so I, I think we're blessed with with so many great musicians I'm with two of them right now and and I don't forget that and that's that's an amazing thing um um but oh, then you have to think of Johnny obviously and Roddy Frame um yes. Sargent from the Bunnymen yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And obviously you get the edge um, uh, as well. It is astonishing. Yeah. You know, all those, there was so, so many, almost you pass over the edge almost because like, yeah, whatever. But actually it's astonishing um, music that, that he made. Um, and uh, guitars everywhere. People with semi-acoustic guitars on top of the pops that I was looking at, even if they were wide. Barefoot. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and all these things. And I was, I was really blessed with it. With, with actually, I, I, I played a 355 on the chart number one video. It was mine. Yeah. The, gar the guitar got stolen not long after that anyway. oh was that a cherry red 1961 get the, get the serial number <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i don't think it had a bigsby on it but although i've got one now um yeah but, i was but, those and, and people yeah. who made parts yeah like mm -hmm. guy says exactly it wasn't just uh strumming along i think that probably that reference is probably in the early 90s there was lots of those kind of indie bands who just kind of wanted to sort of drift into obscurity and were sort of quite um sort of apologetic about making music um but i grew up on um 
the music around uh, the guys uh, like you and, and the era you're around. And I think the interesting thing probably I found is that actually I, I borrowed all the stuff that you grew up on. And I've, I, I really learned this from Johnny and Edwin and people like that who I got to know. Oh, um, yeah. They grew up on, on Bowie and T-Rex and all that stuff. I didn't grow up on that. And when I didn't, it, you know, it's, I was too young for me. But, you know, the Blondie and Madness and stuff were my first sort of pop intros, mm-hmm. you know. And um, But I think I borrowed all that stuff that you'd absorbed. Take us back to, to the house, to, to the you know, to you getting your guitar. What was that? What was that stuff? Because it it's an Irish background, isn't it? Yeah, my parents are from Dunleary. I love Dunleary. You know, I spent, I, I wrote the Through the Barricades album in Dunleary. I, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I How did you know that? Yeah, I did because because I because I've got thousands of cousins in Dunleary, and and uh, I don't know. I, I I probably would have been there. We, we basically used to go to Dunleary every single summer uh, on holiday. There's that an old a- theatre there. We were set. We were set up in this old theatre. I remember rats running around. Not the Boomtown ones, the <laughs> real ones, or the pedals. <laughs> anyway, sorry, 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 Ben. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I remember reading this later on. I thought, oh my god, I was probably there at that time. And you just thought it was kind of a, a nothing sort of town. It was really, to be honest, it was boring because I mean, where I grew up in North London, uh, everyone was um, everyone was second generation Irish, you know, and a few Poles. Um, the Poles were like pillars of the community. They were really strong and intelligent and, you know, just amazing people. Um, everyone else was the Irish. And so, um, you know, all, all your friends were going to fantastic farms in Mayo and Donegal. And we were going to an estate in outside Dublin. So that was a bit grim. And um, But Dunleary is actually now, it's super gentrified and beautiful in Dunleary and all down that coast. I was there last weekend and, it, and it's, it's a fabulous place. Yeah. But yeah, we grew up in yeah Irish uh, communities. Um, everyone was Irish, and um, uh, listening to country music. Um, my dad was—that's what you listened to in the seventies. All the Irish were into country and western, uh, which is kind of a loose, you know, it would go between Johnny Cash at the coolest end, but then it was like you know Don McLean and uh, I don't know Val Dunican even or whatever, <laughs> you know, and uh, Glen Campbell and all, all the Glen Campbell stuff and all all that kind of stuff but it was country country music which has got that kind of um sense of sadness and forlornness and heartbreak about it that irish music often has and and a sort of a rebel spirit as well so just to jut it but in there this is this is really you could be describing why you're working with jesse buckley now i mean here's an irish girl and you're taking all those influences you just mentioned yeah i mean with the other thing we went to um we used to go to um to get away from dublin we used to go to kerry as uh, a tree as part of our holiday because uh, my parents had friends there uh, on a place called Valencia Island, which is just um, near Dingle, right on the edge coast, remote island, basically. And so we used to go there all the time. And that, that was really fond memories. We all loved Kerry, loved it, the darkness and the clouds, the rain, but just mystical, romantic, beautiful. It's free for London kids who just all we ever saw was, you know, smelly cars and stuff like that. It was just, um, it was complete heaven. You know, you'd go and fishing and stuff and there was no electricity, no TV or anything. It was just beautiful. Um, so I have fond memories of it. So when I met Jessie um, and she said to me on this FaceTime, um, uh, I said, where are you? And she said, um, oh, I'm in Ireland. And I said, well, obviously you're in Ireland. Where are you in Ireland? And she said, oh, I'm in Kerry. 
uh, so in the, and I said, well, I know Kerry. And, and it went from there. And we kind of knew all the same places. And we spent about half an hour just doing that, the conversation of, well, we just got to know each other because we know all this stuff. And I don't, we haven't done anything yet. So, um, yeah, I, um, we, we, had, we, had, we, we have a, a, a great bond over that, I guess. I'm, I'm just a plastic paddy, uh, as sure. I think what Guy wants to know is, is, your, is when you first got your yeah. guitar. Yeah. Who, was, who, were you, who were you first trying to copy? What was the, uh, what was so, the moment when you thought, I need a guitar, I need, you know? Well, I played a violin between the age of seven and 14 um, at school. I got to grade four. Um, in fact, I play violin on, a lot on this record really badly on my Amazon 30 quid violin uh, during lockdown. But um, I, as I played the violin and um, my two brothers, I've got two older brothers, they bought a violin off a mate, a guitar off a mate at school that had like a battery amp next to it, a K guitar and uh, for 20 quid. And they, I remember them coming home and saying, here you go you learn it because you can do this kind of stuff and teach us and then fuck off <laughs> well, so, I was, uh, at first i was thinking oh my god how nice brothers who actually went and bought you a guitar no. but now as it unfolds <laughs> no that's the only reason so um so i i thought well all right i'll give that I'm, I'm fine with this and um and I, I i picked it up quite quickly with um a Burt Whedon um oh, oh man, my man. god that's how i started generations across the generations <laughs> so yeah. it, but so many guitar players we've had on here even you know guitar players from hank marvin fucking <laughs> <laughs> i mean everybody had the flexi disc on the front, the seven inch flexi, and oh, uh, I picked that up oh, and then I learned some tunes and I learned to play uh, some simple Sunday Bloody Sunday, I remember learning quite early on and New Order, New Order stuff basically, because it was Bernard Sumner's one note yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Joy Division riffs that it were just quite one note. It's quite easy to pick up, you know, and if you could learn the riff to New Dawn Fades or something, and I play that back to my brother and they're like, right, go away. And they just, <laughs> just keep it. You can have it. And uh, that's that's how I, I started to play guitar because they just didn't want it back. And then and that I was stuck with it, really. <laughs> and um, I mean, on all I did, I mean, like I said, we had great records coming out all the time there with with guitars in it. How old are you um, here? How old are you here? 14. 14. 14. Yeah. I know, I, I know you said it's later that you've discovered Bronson, but there's definitely element. I remember when I very first heard the early suede stuff and I just thought he, he he's, he's got Mick inside him. He knows what how to play those riffs. I mean, I didn't. I mean, uh, we we had Ziggy Stardust, so so I shared a room with my older brother Stephen, and he had Ziggy Stardust, and uh, it wasn't some. Yeah, we definitely played that, although it wasn't something that I played a lot because I just didn't play old records generally. I played. Yeah. I'd buy the Smiths' um, new song, I'd take it home, and I'd learn it, and that was my my mission: get it, listen to it, learn it. How and long then, did it take you to learn the intro to "How Soon to uh, This Charming Man"? This charming man's quite tricky. That's, yeah. that's too, but I've, I've got that. Yeah, I've got that down. Uh, some of the others were, yeah, there was some hardcore stuff in there. But um, yeah, the, and so I had, I mean, obviously had Ziggy Stardust, but um, it wasn't such a, a, a big thing at that time. Um, and Bowie for me at that time was Let's Dance and stuff. You know, that was... Right. That, that was the David Bowie I knew and thought. Yeah, yeah that's the, the but that's so Bowie. That's it's Bowie was the Labour Party. That's his Blair years, really, isn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah. But I loved it. I mean, but I, that was also. I just thought, oh, he's this pop star. You know, yeah. that's great. I love, David Bowie's great, and so are loads of other people. You know, it wasn't really that special place um, that I discovered later on. Obviously, yeah. Um, and and as for, I definitely wouldn't have known Mick Ronson's name um, or, or focused on that at all. Planning for your next trip. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We have to make our way into you playing in, in Suede, I guess, which is... Um, was that your first band or not? It can't have been your first band. Um, and apart from school sort of bands where, you you know, you convinced the bloke sitting behind you to play bass on a Sunday and they just did it and then didn't turn up or, or something. Yeah, there was there was a few of those kind of um, attempts. Um, but apart from that, it was the first time. Yeah, I spent a long time. uh Feels like a long time, probably wasn't at that time, but um, yeah, to, uh, answering adverts and just getting turned down or, or going to some bloke's house in Turnpike Lane or something and um, and them just saying, go away. Uh, so I got I got Aww. turned down a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really yeah, some really mate, unkind mate. <laughs> I really unkind people at the stick in my mind that I'm just like, I hope, I hope you never, I hope it never got anywhere. Um, so um, yeah. And then I answered an advert in the in the enemy for um, uh, and uh, in it's about October in 1989, I think. Yeah. And uh, and that became Suede. Yeah. Simple as that. And what was the advert? Can you remember what the advert said? Um, it, it mentioned um, the, its influences, the Pet Shop Boys and Lloyd Cole. And that's sort of strange. You would never put those together. I guess the Pet Shop Boys, you would. I mean, I love both of them. I, I really, I was a big Pet Shop Boys fan, still am. And you just played on, yeah, the, you, on their last album, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, such a thrill. Yeah, I, I mean, I love them. They're, they're, they're really lovely. And um, when, Neil, when I grew up with Neil interviewing me, because when, yeah, he was, when he was a journalist at Smash Hits, he was my favourite journalist. I loved <laughs> it. Every time I did, did an album would come out, I'd, I'd say, oh, can I speak to Neil, please? And then, of course, he ends up in a pop group that's even bigger than mine. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah that's well i mean uh, yeah that's made another story playing with the pet shop boys but yeah i had that and I, I don't know what i thought about that really i think that was knowing um uh, brett at the, t- at the time who, who put the advert in i think that was kind of a strategic you know way of wording you know that they didn't want sort of you know a led zepp devotee or something but didn't it up. say no musos yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, something. Like You're just, a bloody muso. You know what? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, I don't think I. Do, you know what? I just it was. You know what? The truth is, it was the only bloody advert that week, and I was just answering them all. And um, it was the only one that was in that week. And I just, I was just like, yeah, I'll phone this one up, see what happens. You know. So that there it was. It wasn't really anything to do with the detail. It was just a bonus. I think that I do remember there was a bloke called Ken who came like the night before me. 
and he got into audition first. And I remember them saying, slagging Ken off because he was just, he was a Led Zepp muso, basically. And uh, he said they should sound more like Led Zepp. That really sticks in my head. And his name yeah. was Ken. And Ken's such a sort of 60s name as there or something. <laughs> <laughs> who else was there? Do? Who else was there? Who was, was yeah. Were the other guys there? Or? Uh, well, it was Justin Frischman then. Justine and Justin, Matt. Of course, yeah. Brett, yeah, that's it. And, we, and, uh, and they were just sitting in um, Brett's uh, sort of uh, bed sit flat. And uh, yeah, playing me some of their demos, which were all very light and acoustic. And <clears throat> they were very into the lilac time at the, mo- at the time. They had a good oh, Stephen right. Duffy. Oh my God, them. wow. Yeah, it's still going. So, in, so in, was so into Lilac Time, and I liked that record as well. He made a super record, uh, Love for All. Love, Love for All, yeah, yeah. Because I'd been working with Stephen just up till then, funnily enough, writing, oh, writing oh, and right. producing yeah. with him. Well, well, I, I didn't know. There you go. Yeah. Come, it all comes around. So, um, yeah, and I loved that record as well. Yeah, um, and it was kind of nice. We had some quite nice times, and it was all. It's all a bit lightweight for a quite a, quite a while, and it and it had to sort of get serious at a certain point, um, and serious in a. That became a sort of uh, serious musically, um, and that meant heavier and darker, and that was sort of uh, coincided with our lives becoming sort of heavier. And uh, I think everything evolved in that way. So it it evolved emotionally in that way, the whole thing. Well, this is why it's such a great time to form a band, isn't it? Because because you, you know, as you be, you're coming out of your teenage years and going into your early 20s, it's possibly one of the most difficult times that a human being goes through. The angst and the concern about who you are and your identity. And you, know, you, you have a few sort of key icons that you're trying to sort of be inspired by that, that, that will take you into adulthood. But, but everyone pulling and tugging in different directions at the same time as trying to make music together. But also, I'd say, because it was musically, it was a very odd time. There was, everything was a bit lost, wasn't it? We, we, were def- we were in the crossover between generations. So the 80s was gone. We didn't know what the 90s were yet. I kind of mm. think. Apart from things like Massive Attack was the only really strong thing I remember from. And also, of course, the that Mancunian time. stuff was where it was. Well, that was sort of, of wearing out, was just wasn't going. It? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, all, yeah. you know. Yeah, all of all of those things. Yeah, completely. Uh, I mean, I guess what was the, the thing? The eighties were very tribal uh, between pop and mm-hmm. rock and and what you'd call the alternative. And things were quite were very cut and dry. Were where you were mm-hmm. uh, at school at that time. You were very you were in camps very clearly. There's no crossovers, and that was about your hair and your clothes and and your. Twas ever thus. Twas ever thus. So, Everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, it's not now. No, I mean, no. So, but, but so I'm talking about like back to Gary in my day, certainly. Sure. Yeah. And and um, but and that has had an up and a down to it, which had um, it didn't have diversity connected to it, but it was, it was had conflict in there, but it also made things very um, uh, very strong, and strong choices you made. And I think the the thing that occurred to, um, to I don't know if it occurred to us. I mean, it's definitely what we wanted to do. I just didn't like a lot of the indie music, you know, that early nineties. Didn't really like. Loved all the Manchester stuff. I loved yeah. all the um, baggy stuff, the indie dance stuff. I loved all mm-hmm. of that. Was, that was such a brilliant movement, and that was a it was a great time for me to be at that age and uh, being stupid and going out and stuff like that at that age. Um, but coming out the other side of that, 
I just think we just didn't like a lot of the the music around. We saw music that was incredibly successful, what was in the charts, and there was a huge void between, uh, you know, Phil Collins or uh, Annie Lennox or something like that. All those things that were that were hugely successful, and uh, where the, the flip side, alternative music, there was no real strong identity. And it wasn't like, oh, let's design a band to to fill that void. There was no there was no concept in that way. It's just that I think um, we liked making music that had strong melody and a strong sense of structure and, and people could sing. It was really simple. Like we didn't want to make music that people didn't want to like. We, wanted, we thought this is the music we listen to and this is what, we, what we're trying to do. So let's try and do something that people connect with. Yeah, I mean, it definitely pl- it plugged into the stuff that I grew up on, obviously. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I was blown away by your first album. You know, I thought it was the most incredible record I'd heard since the early 70s, you know, seriously. I mean, I just thought the, the mm-hmm. combination of you and Brett made was something that had emotion, it had English subtext of suburbia and, um, and storytelling and angst. And it was all there in your, between your guitar and his voice. And, mm. and and the kind of songs you were making. Um, but That's I think also... There's lots sorry. of character, you know, character. Yeah. What, he, what he did, you know, that suede songs aren't very coverable for one no. reason, just that then they're very hard for anyone else to sing those words. They're, but it's, just, it's a distinct, very distinct thing um, and uh, a distinct character to the way he sang at that time. He, he kind of adopted a kind of... Um, kind of tone and a, and a delivery which he was good at and people as soon as people responded to it he just did it more and and we and and and, and a way of writing a thing a, a thing that he explored with his writing uh, lyrics mm. which um, people responded to and, and he got more into it and and, and we all did that uh, I did that the same I did that and I fed him with with music I was gonna say how was the writing working with I mean, I just wrote, I didn't write any lyrics of Suede. It was all about music. And uh, so um, it very rare, I, I, I've never really done this since, but just gave him pieces of music fully formed and pretty much. And uh, uh, and, often, and often together. Often, like Johnny, um, <laughs> the Smiths. Yeah, very like <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. And often sitting together and massaging them together and working them out and stuff, yeah. you know. But, um, uh, things were very, became more and more blunt. And our lives, I think even though, like you said, Gary, you, you expect that part of your life to be fun and just sort of a bit of a giggle, you know, and I don't remember it like that, really. Like it was, there were times like that, but it was so, I found it really fraught and um, really very um, sink or swim our lives at the time, um, wondering what would happen to us. And I, became, I think both of us tried to make music that was very like that. It was standing on the edge of the cliff that's always the sort of idea that i always have in my head the image of you have to jump or you have to make this work and um and so the musically i gave i I did things that were um a little bit like when you play the piano when you play a piano very bluntly and you as a bass player and a guitar player i've got here in front of me um the the bass player you comes down on the left and the right comes down on the two you know you know how you do that like that just big one two steps everything very blunt so rather than strumming an acoustic guitar very nicely and very gently everything would be like you know and and i wanted everything to be like that so it'd be like you will get this you know listen to this and if you don't like it that's fine but you won't miss it that that's the that's the approach and so it became a sort of a, a sort of a rhythmic 
um, thing of how he approached. Very, very. You bland. know, people get very cross, don't they, uh, with bands if if they fall apart, and um, because they're making the music that is important to them, and sometimes it's fantastic music. But but to live with someone in a band that you're not comfortable with, and I've been there, is hellish, and um, and people, but people outside feel you somehow need to stay there because you owe it to them because you've changed their lives with that music. Yeah, <laughs> it's awkward, isn't it? Um, I mean, listen, the way I've, I, I yeah, I, you, you do feel like you're playing a public service, but then again, that sounds a bit arrogant because you're very grateful for, for doing it and being in that position in the first place. So, you know, it blows me away to hear even you say this um, now, after all these years that you're listening to that record, it's still never, um, you know, ne never ceased to amaze me. But um, I just feel that, that the whole thing is about growing and reinventing and challenging. All the people I like did that. And so it surprises me that people want me to do the same thing when the whole point is, uh, is, is about changing and learning. You're absolutely and, right, but especially with the music that influenced you, that was the whole point, wasn't it? Was that you were going to hear something exactly, new every time. You're absolutely right. I was listening to um, your last week's show with Ken Scott, which I could just sit yeah. after 30 seconds and write something down. You know, it's one of the <laughs> ones where, like, hold on, what did you say? Um, and, uh, but one of the great thing, one of the many great things he, he said was about how when uh, when they he finished a record with Bowie, um, they didn't listen to it and didn't talk about it and they just moved on. And uh, for me, that's that, uh, that's that's always the way I think about things. If you say that to people who love your records, they can't understand mm -hmm. that because that's all, that's the point of it. You make a record so you can listen to it over and over, don't you? And um, But um, from our side of the fence, um, if you're sitting around listening to a record and, and wanting to do the same thing, then there's something wrong. So I really, it really resonates with me, people who, who, who have that mentality. And, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. It, it's so good that I'm not still in, in that band. It's such a fucking yeah. brilliant <laughs> stroke, stroke of luck for me. But after, <laughs> after 30 years, because I just think of everything I've done, I just think of Jesse, for example, it wouldn't have happened. Mm -mm. It's just, just there's so much that wouldn't have happened. And, and I'm so grateful that, that I had that when I was young. And it was, uh, it, it was at, at some points it was a brilliant laugh and at some point it was hell on earth, <laughs> but I don't really mind that. I, I'm really happy to talk, to think that was part of my life, you know, the good and the bad. And then I went and did all this other stuff. Yeah, Listen, so I, don't, I don't want to dwell on Suede too long. So I don't, yeah. there's so much about you, you that's, that's more than this. Um, but I, I do just want to... Because it's two it, albums. Um, it's two albums in your life. Out yeah, of the, you know, I know. I mean, no matter how, how but, important... I mean, yes, they're incredibly important, but you've made so much great... Exactly, there's just so much. But but I think Dog Man Star, and I know there was massive issues for you during that making mm. of that record, and, and it got very mixed press. And, you know, some people called it ex the most pretentious album ever made. I think <laughs> there's some incredible work on that, uh, Bernard. And I and, 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 and Ash felt... Well, I mean, Nashville World, I mean, I think is an extraordinary piece of music, which which stands up and has stood the test of time. But and is definitely I can hear inspirations of and I'm going to use that word we often use on this program, prog, and <laughs> just really trying to push the boundaries. You're saying and we're not going to do an album that is like the last one. I want to experiment more and look further with music. Someone said to me at, at the time of around that first record, uh, someone at the label or something um, said 
to me, you know, you want to do what T-Rex did. Um, and I didn't really care about T-Rex that time. I mean, as I said, it wasn't something I grew up on. Um, you want to do what T-Rex did and, and just stick to the template. Get that template. That's what he did. That works. Do it again and again and again. And it really, it was, it was a bit like somebody had stopped me and my blood went cold. I really remember that, that time thinking, uh-oh, no, I can't, do, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not that person. So, yeah. And I also felt like, well, if T-Rex did that, well, they've already happened and they were really good. So there's really no point in just doing that all over again. Pretending... Yeah, but they were two albums, really. That was, that was you know, Mark started tailing yeah. off after that. Well, well, because he stuck to the template yeah. or he tried to. Yeah. And, um, but that really, yeah. And so I remember that I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to tear things up and I think it's, it's just a mad thing really, because it, you, it's seen like if you tear things up, artistically that you're some kind of uh, nasty saboteur and you're trying to destroy career suicide and you're trying to mess people's lives up or something and I was seen a little bit like that at the time but I just I just thought I was doing my job you know I look at you lot what all the things you do and you're doing now and everything and it's this is this is what interests me people who just who are you're in Sophia today playing with Nick Mason or God knows and and lots of people and look at all the people we all play with mm -hmm. that's that's the point of me that's 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 the point. You do something and then do something else and it keeps getting exciting. And if we get to this point in our lives and we're still doing this silly thing that we all learned to do when we were 14 because we heard a good record, it's like, <laughs> wow, what a life. It's what a life. You know, I, I still think that what yeah. a life, you know. But there's, but, but there's elements of Asheville world, though, that I can hear in your music now where you're experimenting with guitars and different and, 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 and textures. And this is this was the direction you really you were going in. I was having fun and uh, things changed. I wanted the drums to sound like um, Martin Hannett. Um, oh. That was the thing. I wanted it to sound like, uh, I loved Joy Division. Joy Division, I grew up yeah. Joy the Martin Hannett sounds. And I wanted the, the drum sounds, the panned drum sounds and echo and, and stuff of, of Martin Hannett and the guitar sounds. Um, uh, what I don't know what I'd been listening to at that time. It was um, bits of Floyd, actually. In, in a way, I'm not like, I've never gone uh, into a massive Floyd sort of, times in my life but I remember there was certain things at that time which I listened to a lot I think it was metal and I think that because that's the one with the long instrumental stuff going on isn't it and and just well, stuff where echoes, I could, yeah. echoes. well I always thought you yeah. know just one point I'll, I'll make about that the Hannet towards it is because every night when, when we do we do set the controls for the heart of the sun and I've always thought that, that is the greatest song that Joy Division never wrote it's like you yeah. could stick that song in the middle of unknown pleasures and you wouldn't notice it would fit right in. Yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, it's this—it's—it's it's the feeling of sound, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, and getting absorbed by the sound. I was also really obsessed with that time with um, uh, "You've Lost That Loving Feeling" by the Righteous Brothers, um, which is um, still like a yeah, favorite yeah. record ever. And there's just something about it. Yeah. Not Human just... League did a cover of that as well, didn't they? Right. Really... Yeah. yeah. Not just as a pop. Not as obviously a great, great song, great pop song. But I just got drawn into this sort of dark oddness of his voice mm -hmm. and the sound of it and and the opening line which i always adore and and all the things that happened the kind well, of, i can hear a lot of scott down, walker yeah. in your work and scott of course yeah and um walker brothers so um that's the kind of stuff i was uh, absorbing at that time and also not there was a record by um mark and the members mark Harmon's uh side oh, yeah, project yeah 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 and terreros and he made this very strange uh dark record about 84 i think it was always one of my favorite records, still is. It's played a big role in the Jesse record, actually, as well. And uh, that was a big, big influence for me at that time um, because it because it reminded me of when I was 
when I was growing up and it had been a very dark teenage record to listen to. And um, it was the, like the flip side to anything, uh, uh, I guess, pop, you know. And um, so those are the kind of influences um, I had. When it came to guitar playing, I was just learning, you know, it was just learning. It's like, oh, suddenly I've got a guitar and I can do this. And I, and I had a four track and I'd record something and then overdub it. You know, you know, those days and, you know, where everything is absolutely new. Yeah. And, uh, and I was just layering stuff up. And uh, but it, for me, it wasn't really just it wasn't really the um, the parts. It was the it was just the it just it was all about the delivery, the emotional delivery. My dad had just died um, and that played a big role in the way I was feeling. Um, I was, you know, in a rock and roll band and my dad died. And uh, while I was on tour in America and I went home for the funeral and then went back on tour a week later. Oh, my God, yeah. Which, and then spent six weeks in America with people just having a party. And and uh, and that that is the biggest impact on my life, probably that moment, you know, uh, of everything. So I uh, kind of, because you were kind of told to come on, get on with it, you know. And uh, I think that took me probably a good decade to recover from that moment. Yeah. Uh, of, um, not in a bad way. Again, this is stuff that happens to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And it and it's um it's part of my experience. But if if, I, if I'm talking about how music evolved at that time, it's got a lot more to do with that than listening to sort of um, Pentangle or something. Actually, you know, just just that emotional sense of where you are, you know, and how you evolve. And then from that, coming out the other side, you just say, right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do something else. What you do is you go off and talk to someone dear to my heart. You um you team up with David McCalmont. My yeah, son's David. godfather. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I bet he takes that super serious. Well, no, he's, he, he's really chosen serious. very carefully. He, I mean, he, Stan already had a godfather. He was chosen as a sort of cultural, only because cause David has is so, apart from his incredible music, he's so beautifully um, versed in film and Shakespeare. And, and we thought it'd be a great cultural resource for Stanley, <laughs> which of course oh, yeah. he's not using at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I did actually uh, tell David that I was talking to you and he said, I'm struck by how much of a down-to-earth regular family guy dad he is. I don't want to make him sound ordinary, but he is in exception to many musicians I've worked with, treats his compositions and playing like a trade, which it underscores the genius beautifully. Oh, God bless Dave. <laughs> he doesn't like me calling him Dave. Uh, oh, how did it? How did it happen? Because it, yeah. it's you know, if, if I was writing you, if you were a fictional character, I don't think I would have had you leaving Suede and meeting up and making those kind of records. I think that took everyone by surprise yeah. that you went in that direction. I, as I, great I've got as to, it was. I, yes, a classic single. I mean, it's amazing. unbelievable. Yeah, yes. Um, how I don't know. I, I, I was having fun. You know, uh, like I said, it, I think, again, you're, you're in that band and that's all the music you listen to and all you ever want to make. That's the kind of the view from the outside, isn't it? But we know that's not true because otherwise you <laughs> lot wouldn't have done all the million things you've done. You know, so it's not, you're not just stuck in, in that one place. What you're listening to, going away listening to is, I don't know, Billy Joel or something like that. Because, yeah. you know, I want to party like everyone else does and, you know, and ABBA and, and all those things. And and uh, I, I, I guess uh, leaving sweat. So when you leave a group, when you fall out of the group, all those things, your whole life disintegrates in terms of the backdrop of your friends and all that kind of stuff. Because when you're well, that's group, also the scariest it's ever going to be. Um, I remember the yeah. first time I, I, I did that was when I left this Australian band Ice House. And it's so scary because it's the first time you've ever known any sort of job or, you know, money, anything. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And you build, when you're young, you build your life around yeah. that. You just 
end up absorbed by it. You're doing everything, socializing, hanging out. And then when it's gone, it's suddenly like, oh, I don't actually know anyone. <laughs> you know, it was, it was really like that. And um, and so we had to really quickly, um, quickly try and find some sort of enjoyment, you know, try and try and pick myself off the ground, really. Um, and uh, had this piece of music, um, which which was just literally trying to make some fun beautiful uplifting music just trying to cheer myself up doing i wanted to do something with strings i wanted to do something that wasn't around guitars necessarily um there was this record by swing out sister which i really loved called um you on my mind it's about mm-hmm. 1989 oh, okay. and i really really loved it it's like a baccarat kind of yeah yeah, yeah 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 pastiche but really beautiful really lovely record and it had all these key check baccarat and david key changes going on and stuff and i always in my mind wanted to do something like that something that felt like that I had that kind of swooping uh cinematic feel as you say you know <laughs> i was listening to dusty an awful lot um that comes that, out that, with you a lot by the way yeah. Dusty over the yeah. With various oh, people. Dusty. yeah well obviously with duffy as well yeah yeah exactly yeah. And so, um, you know, had this piece of music and actually David, it didn't go to first. It went to, um, uh, there was a couple of other people. It went to Kirsty McCall was one of them. Ah. I found Kirsty's house and uh, in, Morrissey. In Ealing. Yeah, in Ealing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> and Morrissey was the first one and um, he got played it and he really wanted to do it. And then he said, oh, I can't do it. Uh, so I was like, okay, fair enough. And then Kurt, did it have, sorry, sorry, but did it have lyrics or how were no, you project? How were you presenting the melody? So this is a complete instrumental with drums, strings, wow. structure, the whole thing. No melody, no lyric, and it was just a piece of music. And um, I think people around me thought, oh, this is a good tune. You know, somebody's got to do this. Um, so then I found myself in Kirsty's house in Ealing on a Sunday afternoon, and. Uh, uh, and guess who the, the doorbell goes and it's Morrissey standing there. And it's like, <laughs> it's nice, really weird now. And, um, okay. and then we, the three of us are in her garden. I was like, I don't know if she knows that he got this. I don't know. If he <laughs> and, and I'm just this twat who's just like, just left the band. And I'm, and I'm just like, I want to go. And I've got... I'm, I remember going home and I shit you not about this. Honestly, this is kind of the stuff you make up and it's not. I got home and uh, there was non you know, we had answering machines yeah, in those yeah. days. Press play. And um, and it's, uh, hi Bernard, uh, this is uh, Johnny Marr, got your number. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I swear to God, I was in the middle of the three of them. And I just thought, I don't know what's going on here. I, I don't know. I know you lot all know each other, but what is going on here, you know? <laughs> And, and then, uh, man, it was, it was very strange. So anyway, they didn't end up with any any of them. <laughs> and, uh, the stars uh, were aligning. I don't know. It's just I got, ended up in a strange sort of, yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't know how I ended up. Anyway, I met David. I was asked, um, I'd met him once before. And um, I went to see David at the Jazz Cafe. And David... Um, uh, did his set, his, his solo set at the time. And, uh, but what stuck in my mind, apart from him being amazing, was um, he had a drummer, a Japanese guy came on and played the oh, drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jazz Cafe, you know how it's got that big ceiling and everything's pretty loud in there. Mako, this guy called Mako was playing the drums and I just looked at him and I just thought, oh my God, well, I, I want David, obviously, but I want you, whoever you are, I want. You know, so my, I really zoned in on him. What's his name? Like Sakamoto? Made, is it? Yeah, Mako Sakamoto. And so, um, so I remember, yeah, and I, I met David after the show and gave him a tape and he came around to my house two days later and and, and uh, he bashed out one verse and then we, a couple of days later he came back and he sang the same verse twice, which no one ever notices on that song. It's only got, he just repeats the It's verse. worked for Noel. It's worked for Noel for years. 
Yeah. yeah but but um, what a what a voice. What a voice. Yeah. And you know, yeah, we had Dave we had David Arnold on the show because David's worked with, oh, yeah. you know, with David David's, as well. In fact, David worked did strings, I think, on the on your one on, of the albums. Yeah, on the second, second, one, yeah. The second David, one, yeah. Yeah, he was he's been he's been really great to me over the years, David. Um and uh yeah, I I love that song. Um I mean the principle was that it became an anthem for the uh, for the Irish marriage vote, didn't it? Didn't it did, yeah. We went over, me and David went over there because oh, it's called um, yes, right? yeah, yeah. And we didn't know we didn't actually know about this. We got there just when the referendum was just happening, and we had no idea that they were using it. Um, and which is also which is a is one of the very many beautiful aspects to that song. Um, that happened it's, it's so great for me but obviously so great for david you know as as a gay man to go to an island and, and that be happening what a great thing yeah. to people Amazing. to sing your anthem you know about freedom um so i mean look the principle was that i wanted it to be like a northern soul track that no one knew who it was no one there was no picture on the cover it was a disco sleeve you know the whole and um, it didn't matter about looking at me, swinging my hair around or whatever, and um, or what we looked like or any of those things. It wasn't a band. There was no T-shirt. There was no tour. There was no poster. It was literally what come, what is, the, again, going back to that, uh, my sort of obsession with the pure essence of music. And if I look at speakers like I'm looking at now, and I always look at the cone, you know, the, the cone on your, your speaker, and you see the way it, it goes down like a cone, you see this moment of infinity in the middle. And I always think that's where the sound comes from. And you have to find that sound, the most pure essence of, of music. And so what can you, how can you, how far can you get into that where you take away everything but just the sound? That comes out and that's the way um i wanted yes to be presented it was just it was there was no album there was no nothing it was just a piece of noise that you'd just turn on dance to and just forget about everything else and um and it was it was hard work it became really hard work because people didn't like it at first the label didn't like it david's label weren't interested in it they wanted david to be a bit like a big star and um and um in a solo way and um you know i didn't really have a label People weren't be so it, we sat on it for a long time for about six months before it came out, um, and eventually it came out and it did its job on its own. But it just sort of it just happened, you know that song, and and um, and, it, and it still does. Yeah, I love it. So when you said so, but was there an album plan? So was it just the song, and then the album happened, or? Yeah, it was just that song, and yeah. there was another song called "You Do," which yeah. was the the other. The idea with the was that it would be they're in the same key, and one's fast and one's slow, and they'd be a double A side. That was the principle at first, and then we eventually thought, okay, well, we'll do two singles, make it like that, and and the label got on board and said, well, can you do more songs? And we were like, well, we haven't got any, and so we did things really quickly, um, and so we went into Rack on a Sunday afternoon. Um, with like some real bare bones um, of, of some of some ch new tunes, and uh, so basically the the story is we I'd booked an engineer and I was going to produce, which of course I didn't know how to do, but I was like, well I'll just do it. Um, and an engineer, the engineer didn't turn up, and there was this guy there who was the tape hop as we used to call him in those yeah, days. Yeah standing there and he was going well i can do it mate i can do it and i'm like well look we've, we've paid for this engineer and he spoke he'll be here in a minute i think and it got to like four o'clock in the afternoon we're all waiting there to record and i said okay look you're gonna have to do it or, we, or we're not gonna do anything so this bloke uh who's pestered me all day his name was nigel and um so nigel did it and then the, the, the engineer turned up and we said mate you're fired 
because my mate Nigel, my new mate Nigel's doing it, and actually it sounds pretty good. And uh, so me and Nigel, and that was Nigel Godrich. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. Wow. <laughs> he went on to produce Radiohead, obviously. Yeah. So yes, me and Nigel became mates at that time because Nigel was just like just the the pestering engineer who just thought I can do this. Why are you getting someone else? And and <laughs> um, we, that's we just, how it happens. We, that's how it happens, isn't it? You know, it is. I did a day with McCumber. I can't remember what what it was. Yeah. In Rack. I don't think anything well, happened with it did it it didn't come out yeah, yeah. Um, that was with mike hedges that's right and um, that was one of the i mean i was um met nigel at that time but before that i met mike and um uh, i was really blessed with what happened with mike um he, he was he had a big influence on me um because when i came out of suede um we were using studios a big mixing desk and i was told stay back sonny you want to stay out of this, you know, and all, of course, all that wants, makes you want to do when you're young is say, well, actually, I want to know more now. I want to know what's going on. And I want to know how this is done. And I want to listen to podcasts with Ken Scott revealing everything. <laughs> <laughs> why, why weren't they around in those days? Um, <laughs> and, um, so so I, I went to Mike's studio in France and he had the old EMI um, TG wraparound desk, which is, oh, I think, wow. the Dark Side of the Moon yeah. mixed uh, was mixed on this um and um mike was just very experienced he'd done it all seen it all made lots of money had his chateau and he'd say there you go i said how would how did this work mike and he said oh you do it and i was like right okay and the emi desks were very simple you literally had a, a fader on in each channel you'd have bass and treble basically pre- some presence i think it was called and that was it not much to it so you could just do things and, and move things around on the desk quite easily without breaking anything and mike would just sit at the back and said give that a go go on and he'd sit at the back and, and have a cup of tea uh, and a sandwich and 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 just encourage me to do stuff and it was it really really sticks in my head that he he did that for me because it was the it was again it was somebody uh, a bit older than me who had the confidence um to to say why don't you try something you know, you'll 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 make mistakes, but you're going to find out how this works, and um and, and that's how we made yes together, me and Mike, um by doing that, just just me just turning things up and distorting stuff and and just making mistakes and him just laughing. So that distortion, funny, right? that, that distortion has elements of Phil Spector, doesn't it, about it as well? Because yeah. that's the kind of wall of sound that we recognize. I want to ask you, um, because obviously that album was that was going to come out as McCalmont and Butler. On the on the album you did with Jesse and, and the one you did with Catherine Ann Davis, the anchoress, who, who's been on. Oh, so well. yeah, we, great we, friend we of the Rock on Tours. We love Catherine. Yeah, yeah we love and, her. And um, you chose. Okay, let's talk about the Jesse album briefly again. So mm. you, you, that's not a Jesse solo album. That's that's you and her as as, as the artist. How did that? <clears throat> how did you approach that? Did did it not seem at first to you that this was going to be a Jesse album? And it then was, yeah. how did you say, you know what, I'd really like my name on it. And how did it also work with Catherine, et cetera? Um, well, with uh, with Catherine, it's a different thing because it was just it was done over a period of about 12 years. And it was it, actually it sat there for about five years. And it's a brilliant I just said, album. It's, I just, oh, it's fabulous. And, fabulous. Yeah. And we've done it over different stages and we hadn't actually met that many times we'd written and I'd worked on it in between. And um, and I just went to her and I said, you know what, I'm going to mix this and finish this off. Are you game? Should we just put this out? Because otherwise it's going to sit there forever. And that was literally how that came about a couple of years ago um, with Jesse. And, and I stuck my name on it because um, I think to distinguish it from what Catherine was doing with the Anchoress, um, that project, um, Jesse, I mean, yeah, I fully thought that, oh, this is going to be Jesse's record. And she said she wanted me to be on it. 
Um, and I think that's partly just, you know, um, she just wanted a partner, you know, didn't want to be on, on her own with it. We made mm -hmm. it together anyway. Um, listen, yeah. I think I, they're all my records. <laughs> but, but I think I was... <laughs> No, no. I, I'm producing. I'm writing, or whatever. Of I, I, and, I, and it sounds like, oh, I don't, I don't mean that in terms of ownership. Oh, it's my record. I mean that in in that I put, I dive myself in. If I like something, I dive into it emotionally in exactly the same way and lose myself. Yeah. And was it just my, after that experience with Mike Hedges? You were just like, yeah, I, I produce. I can produce. But I met great people like Nigel. You know, Nigel is yeah. my age and a young, brilliant engineer. He had a, like a BBC trained dad. Um, and so he was an, a, a sonic obsessive, Nigel. Um, and, um, you know, me and him became mates. And, and so I, I, we, we did stuff together and it was a good laugh, you know, and, and, and grew up together in that way for a few years, doing lo loads of stuff um, at Rack. Um, and then when he went off um, uh, with Radiohead, um, you know, and the rest is history with him. Yeah. But, uh, just just to fi finish off on what, what, what you were saying, and I, I completely get this, that you're going to, this album is, is Jesse, Jesse Buckley and, and, and Bernard Butler. This is, this is a story. This album is a story of you two artists coming together. It, it, it was never, get, not, it wasn't a solo album. But at, but at other times, you have worked with artists who are so diverse and, and outside of what you do. And um, when you approach someone like Duffy, say, how were you... Tricky. Or tricky, exactly. Yeah. Which is another yeah. brilliant album, by yeah. the way. How how do you say I? This isn't really part of what I normally do, and I'm going to try and find what belongs to you as an artist. Um, I, I don't try and you've got to try and find the per, the other person. I never try and find me in it. I always try and find other facets. And the, so Duffy, the story is she. I heard a demo with an acoustic guitar, and her voice is in one very nice mid range. And so I just said, well, what's not here? It's always what the crack in the door. I always think, what, where's the crack in the door? You know, like when you see these uh, cartoons, you like you'd see a crack in the door. What's there? You know, mm -hmm. and I always think about in that way. What can I? What's here that we're not seeing? And with her, I could see it was really obvious. Acoustic strum guitar, a good a voice sits in the mid range. I just wanted to hear low, and I wanted to hear high. I wanted to hear a range, and it was simple. And and when we did that song, Rock Ferry, which is the first time we, it was the day we met. Um, it was as simple as that. We wrote a song with no chorus that um, had has three stages where it, it goes between this range and it goes steps up uh, a little bit and then it goes to the octave for the third verse. And uh, and it's as simple as that. It was trying to find something that she wasn't already. And that, that kind of opened the door that doing that song for what happened afterwards with her and for, with other people as well as me. Um, so I always think about, it's about finding, yeah, I mean, all these people, I just try and find who are you? You know, I just want to find who are you? And that starts with just talking to people. Jesse is brilliant with it because, you know, we just sat in my kitchen and talked and talked for a long time for all the songs. And I and we, we, we talked about what we'd read, what we'd seen last night on the telly, what films, uh, what, you know, this quote you saw, this painting. Um, and we, I wrote everything down and she did as well. And then we just sat down with... Um, a guitar in Dadgad. Actually, most of this album is in Dadgad or Open D, which is a total uh, the first time I've ever done this. Um, and so everything was very much a drone. So I could drone everything and just read out the words and the things that we'd written down. And we just assembled them like, you know, the cut, the old uh, Burroughs cut up technique thing. Yeah. Taking strips and saying, what does this mean? What does this mean next to this? And what does this line mean next to this one? And okay, now we have something and this is interesting and talking about it. And all the time we're finding out about ourselves 
and and hopefully pulling something out of pe- human beings that everyone's got like everyone's got it and it goes back to teaching again i'd always mm-hmm. say, say to look i know all you've ever heard is ed sheeran but i know you're a human being and there's so much beyond you there's so much you're thinking about and doing and there's so much going to happen in your life getting to that it's getting to there underneath that is where things become interesting you know and that's where great songs are i think you said i, I, I listened to an interview with you recently <clears> when you had talked about at times when you'll be writing with lots of different people and you're just in, and and you're you're deeply involved in several lives. It's always and you kind of have to, the, the psychology of each episode of each person you're going to see. I've been with my uh, my wife for thirty, I don't know, over thirty years or something. And so I think these are all my affairs, my mistresses, <laughs> you know, all all these sort of partners, and the, that's the way I look at it. That that's it's really nice to dive into people's lives for a week, a day, a year, and then that's it. You achieve, you create mm-hmm. something and then you dive off and we do something. I think that's a really nice quality that you can do that with strangers, you know? Is it harder doing something like the Libertines where you've got a band that everyone loves live and you know, and there, there isn't much room for you to sort of emboss yourself upon them? Um, well, when I met them, they, they, they hadn't really done anything. <clears throat> so I did the first single and then I did one after that, Don't Look Back Into The Sun. And, um, by the time they got to that point, they are—they had become a bit of a phenomenon. Um, but at, at the first time I met them, they were still playing to like twenty people, so it, was, it wasn't hard, you know. And and the, the brief really was to try and um, try and bring out some, making make, an, make a, an interesting record, not just make a punk record, basically. And 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 again, I didn't want to just take a punk band and make and make them sound like the Clash. I just didn't want to do that. And that's where I lost with them, really, because, of course, Mick Jones... I was going to say, then they get Mick yeah, Jones, yeah. so... <laughs> yeah. God bless him. And what's interesting is, yeah. is you stick his voice completely dry up the front. You don't make that Clash record, do you? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, because I didn't want to do that. I thought that... The, the, so when the, the Libertines demos, before anyone had heard them, there was two voices on them, and they'd put them through amps, and it sounded a little bit like the Strokes, but I said, I remember at the time, Jeff Travis um, played it to me at Rough Trade and um, and uh, and I said, who's the singer? And he said, well, there's two. And I was like, well, they both sound, they sound the same. I couldn't distinguish them. So I, 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 it was really important to try and make them distinct. Um, and they were very distinct voices, um, Pete and Carl, but at the time they, they just sounded the same. So I didn't want to sound like they were just a shouty sort of, well, Sham 69 or something, you know, that was the danger, <laughs> you know. I know you, we, we mentioned him earlier, Bert Yant, and your love for him. And um, and we all know he's such an incredible guitar player. And, um, you know, the Travis picking on acoustic guitar that he's known for and all of the his, 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 his brilliance. How do you then decide, oh, I'm going to go and play on his record? And what was it like sitting in the room with him and thinking, what am I going to play that's that's going to be anywhere close to what he does? I mean, I became mates with Bert first, so that it was kind of easier than that because you were just there. And if you were in Bert's front room, you were playing with him. That's that's because he didn't really talk much. So that's that's all that happened really. And um, in terms of playing with him, I just well, I noticed one thing about him really quickly. He doesn't play electric, and it, at all. Mm. I think he had one electric guitar in the house, and that was it. And he didn't play it. And I just thought, you don't do this. And you know, when you when you try and play that style, his the style that um, you know, kind of I always think of it like that. You'd really grab yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. claw. Um, he um, it doesn't sound very good in an electric guitar 
Um, he had a telly, you know, it just didn't sound very good in a Telecaster. So I just thought, well, I'm going to do the thing that you don't know how to do. Right. <laughs> so, and, and also, it's just it's quite easy to do sort of bluesy stuff. I mean, the, it, the problem was that Bert was very used to playing on his own. And so he didn't respect uh, time signature, tempo, anything. You know, he could drop a beat anywhere he fancied and he'd turn the cycle around and you were lost. And so it, it was that was hard. Yeah, hard work. But again, it's just that was like come on, you've got to be good here. You know, I, 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 I wish, I wish I could do it now, you know, with him still, wow. you know, I miss him a lot in that sense. Um, but he was really, again, he was another one of those older people who was just really kind to me and just like, and just made me feel like, yeah, you can do something and let's just go and play some music together. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that relationship. Because aren't you part of some association or this, or the, I don't know, his legacy foundation or something, yeah. Yeah, there's a foundation, the Bert Yannick Foundation, yeah. and uh, which I'm a part of, and uh, we meet up a couple of times a year and try and encourage um, uh, things to happen. We put um, some funding into um, one of my local schools recently, actually, um, to do a guitar trip and things like that. We've, we've had a, a thing with sending a, a guitar around um, as a journey called 80 Plays, sending it around people and getting people to play and be influenced by Bert. So, yeah, is he, he, he had the song that really sticks in my head is It Don't Bother Me, um, which whenever I think of Bert, I just think of that, mm -hmm. It Don't Bother Me. And that was everything with him. You know, uh, people often talk about Bert could have been a superstar and, uh, you know, he could have been, you know, and, and the influence he had on Jimmy Page yeah. or, uh, famously and, and all those things. And whenever you got close to Bert, he was just, don't bother me. He just wanted to sit. What tuning? Really what tuning? What tuning did he use? Was he dad -ga dad gad man? No, almost always regular. That's the other thing. Wow. You know, you you think you go into it thinking it's going to be extraordinary folk tune, Joni style tunings. Mm. And most of the time it wasn't. He was just sort of where he put things, where he put his hand. I was just like, well, that's, not, that's not an E major to me. I don't know where that is, you know. And yeah, he was quite, he was quite extraordinary. But he was he was a happy soul. You know, he had a really, really great life and he was and he was happy with it, doing his thing quietly, you know, and that that was a huge inspiration because, again, it goes back to that pure essence where it was about just the sound you make. Um, so it's a good influence in life. You've just been working with an old friend of mine, Claire Grogan, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're doing the new Altered Images album. Yeah, I have. Well, I've done two songs with Claire. Yeah, Claire's my, uh, she lives on the corner of our road. Um, Claire and Steve. Claire and Steve. So, um, oh, yeah. I used to work with Steve quite a lot. Yeah, uh, they're lovely. I've known them for years, just just because they've lived here as long as me. So, are you and, producing uh, that, or are you just you writing with Claire on I've, something? I've written, I've written and produced two songs with Claire and Steve. Yeah, the I've written and, with Steve as well. Lovely man. Yeah, he's brilliant, and um, yeah, they they they're good friends. And um, Claire wanted to do altered images again, and um, she's great. I love her. She's a spirit, and she's a character. Fantastic. She's a character in the way she sings, um, the way she is as a human being. You you know you know her longer than me, obviously. And um, well, we just... know, of course, she was the muse for a certain uh, song. For a certain yeah, song. We We're not going there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you started this, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just thrilled you're making that record, and and that Bobby Bluebell is on there because Bobby's Bobby yeah. Bluebell is someone and with the Bluebells, who's someone who's always been around in that sort of postcard orange juicy kind of scene of a massive pop writer. Yeah, yeah. Bobby, Bobby Kate, Bobby's. Um, we did a co-write with me, Steve, Claire, and Bobby in my front room. Yeah, how did it work? It's it was just funny. He's like uh, Steve was getting some beats and. 
Bobby was just going, I was at the piano and Bobby was just going through my record saying, make it sound more like T-Rex. And I'm like, oh God, Bobby. It's not <laughs> but how sound. could you do that? Because I, 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 I worked <laughs> in a whole TV series with him in the 90s and I don't think I ever understood a single word he said. Yeah, I get involved with a lot of Scottish people. I don't really know why. Um, <laughs> I, Celtic I, roots. I don't know where, why it is. I'm, I'm doing a thing at the moment with Norman Blake from Teenage Fan Club and James Grant from Love and Money as well. And we're doing like a trio thing in September where we, we play each other's songs. And we did, we did this at Celtic Connections as well. And um, everybody up there has been in, or they've all been in Orange Juice or Altered Images. Every, every one of them. You know, everyone knows each other. Because you worked with Edwin as well, didn't you? Yeah, well, I knew Edwin and worked with Edwin and um, lots of Scottish bands. And I don't know. Why. I love that scene. I love that scene. I found myself gravitating to it in about 1981. And, and you know, I was I just made this album, uh, the the second uh, um, Spandau album with chart number one on it. And there was a there's some sort of strange kind of proggy music on the second side. I don't really know which direction I was going in. And um, and and I started hanging out with with Altered Images up in Scotland and uh uh, and I was always in the car with them being driven around from place to place, Socky Hall Street. And and the album that always used to go on was Marvin Gaye. And that was being played, you know, let's go, you know, Al Green or, you know, that's what they were into. They, they were into their soul, those Scottish kids. Listen to Marvin all night long. And I, and I went and I, that's, and I wrote the Trelm really because of being driven around Socky Hall Street by those, that lot. Wow. That's a, well. That's a, well. That's a, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Well. So we're North Londoners. How, how do we end up in Glasgow? <laughs> Mixed yeah. up with all these people. Well, I have an Irish grandfather, and I think that's. And you're the. You know. You obviously have your Irish roots. I think we we connect with that Celtic passion. Yeah. Well, I think it's soul as well. It's interesting. The Scots um, from that. Yeah, you're right. They all seem to. They're all uh, really into their soul and country. Um, and uh, again, it's a, the, the, something about the Celtic connection with country music, I think, and soul music. I think that's what it is. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, just like with the Jesse project. Bernard, you're just about to break the record, of, I think, of the longest rock yeah. on tours, but yeah. it, which is oh, it's frustrating that we have to leave you. It's I am a, just There's so, so much, much stuff we haven't touched on. Ben Watt. There's, uh... I, I have to say, I'm really, I'm really blown away by you two with the records you made that you've got me here and you, you know my music. I still find it astonishing. I sit in this room on my own most of my life um, I do making music. And when anybody outside of it hears it, it still blows me away. And the fact that you two are talking to me, asking yeah. me about this, it's just, it really, it's, it's really great. And it's a really nice thing. I always say that collaboration is the key to everything. You know, being around, being around great people is, uh, is where you absorb everything. And that's how you, you have to keep learning. If you, if you shut that down, you'll, you'll never learn. And so it's, it's, it's a real joy to, to do this. I could do, all, I could do all the same with you two for oh. sure. This album deserves to win all the awards. I think absolutely. It's absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Oh, thanks so much. Oh, what oh, a man. What a love. And so genuinely and enthusiastic. I love his, he's got a fantastic natural big picture view. Of, that's why, obviously why he finds producing easy. I think he's a decent human being. And I think that's really the crux of it all. I think he, 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 he works with people brilliantly because he's, he's such an open, uh, an easy yeah. person to be with who's very musical. Yeah. Unlike yeah. us. So um, I recommend the National Art, uh, Art Gallery. Here. Yeah, that's where I'm going. Um, I'm going to go and rent a little lime scooter and buzz up there. The downstairs is 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 the local artist uh, from um, the turn of the century, uh, and he's known as the Master, and that's really worth looking at. But there's loads Brilliant. of great stuff. Uh, that's great information for me. For our listeners, perhaps not so no. much. No, not so much. No, we're really sorry. <laughs> Because we can't get him on the show. He died a long time ago. <laughs>
listen thank keep the comments coming keep listening thanks to ben thanks to everyone but thanks to all of you for listening it's 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 such a joy to keep this going it's the feedback's great and the you know yeah. the fact that uh, the people on the show listen to the show is what we love as well yeah yeah and so it's good night from me and good night from everyone planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365 day returns